Electrifying Everything, Decarbonizing Transport in Europe with Dr. Patrick Plötz from Fraunhofer ISI in Karlsruhe. Welcome to episode 10 of the Antenu Energy Transition Podcast. Let's go. Norway is showing the rest of the world that almost full electrification of new car sales is possible and is fun for people to drive. Transport represents almost a quarter of Europe's greenhouse gas emissions and is the main cause of air pollution in cities. The transport sector has not seen the same gradual decline in emissions as other sectors. Emissions only started to decrease in 2007 and still remain higher than in 1990. Hence, let's have a look at that sector to actually understand it a little bit better and the current state that this sector is actually in. And for this episode, I'm really happy to be joined by one of my former colleagues from Fraunhofer ISI. So welcome to the podcast. He's the head of Energy of the Energy Economy Business Unit at Fraunhofer ISI, and uh, his name is Patrick Plötz. Welcome to the podcast, Patrick. Hi, my pleasure. <laughs> cool. It's really, uh, it's really, it's really. I'm really happy to have, actually have you join because in the other podcast that I run, which is uh, the Npower podcast, which is a German energy trans, uh, energy transition podcast, Patrick was one of the f uh, the earliest guests, and uh, we had. I think the third episode was together, and it, up until now, it's one of the most uh, successful episodes that we had, and it was listened a, a, a lot to, and uh, so I'm happy to actually also welcome you to this podcast, not to put the expectations too high, obviously. <laughs> yeah, but that was fun. That was fun, yeah. So I, I think we're going to have some fun today as well. Yeah, that's good. Uh, last time we uh, recorded the podcast in your kitchen or in your living room. Now, wh where are you now, Patrick? Uh, I'm in Germany, in Karlsruhe, southwest of Germany. And uh, yeah, this is all happening online, modern times. Who would have thought that a couple of years ago? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm sitting in a podcast box here at the uh, here at Entenu in Trondheim and at the Dragwell campus. And uh, so we see each other on the screen while we have a chat. All right, Patrick, maybe to just give you a little, give the audience a little bit of an idea who you are, what you do, uh, let me, can you maybe give a little introduction to yourself with five to 10 sentences uh, and what do you do in your normal day-to-day -day work? What got you there and what gets you up in the morning? <laughs> uh, yeah, so m my name is Patrick, as mentioned already, uh, by education, I'm a physicist, um, And um, after my PhD, I decided to do something uh, similarly interesting, but maybe more useful and relevant for the general public. So from theoretical quantum physics, I switched to energy. And uh, for about 10 years now, I've been working at Fraunhofer ISI, and we are mainly uh, providing guidance, consulting the German federal government, the European Commission, and larger companies. So I would usually do some analysis with a new technology, what is feasible, what does at which cost, and maybe give some suggestions for policymakers how to implement that, what to do, and maybe what to avoid in order to, yeah, I mean, um, help battle uh, the climate crisis, uh, help reduce global warming to degrees that are still bearable for us on this small green blue planet. Yeah, lovely. No, I like that. And you are head of this business unit at Fraunhofer ISI. Could you just give me an idea? Like, I know it because I worked at Fraunhofer ISI, but like the audience, what does Fraunhofer ISI do? And, and, and maybe just about these two 
um, these two groups that deal with energy-related topics, and what's the yeah, where where does your business unit fit in there? Yeah, yeah. So uh, Fraunhofer is the uh, largest organization for applied research in Europe. Uh, usually, it has has a very strong focus on engineering, software, mathematics, and uh, there are about 70 institutes. Our institute is a bit special as we don't have any laboratories. Uh, we don't develop anything touchable. We're just mainly writing studies and reports. And uh, focus of the institute is on innovations, uh, how they come about, how they might be steered, and what consequences they might bring for the economy and society. Uh, within the institute, there are two departments working on uh, new energy technologies. And uh, so my business unit is one of them. And we have a kind of a strong focus, not only, but to a large extent on electrification of transport. Yeah, beautiful. Cool. Just to give uh, some context here. So today, Patrick, we're going to talk obviously about transport and the, the name of this uh, episode is decarbonization of Europe's mobility sector. Um, and I'm just going to run through uh, yeah, what we're going to talk about today. So in the beginning, we'll give a little bit of an idea um, why mobility is actually um, why it's relevant. And then we'll go through different types of uh, uh, yeah, forms of mobility. So we'll talk about passenger transport, lo uh, land freight transport, aviation, rail, shipping. Um, and then we also talk about maybe, yeah, the, the mobility transition, let's put it like that, all together, because it's not just about changing the drivetrain, but it might, you know, maybe, and you know that much better than I do, but it maybe it's also, there's other measures that we could also put into place in order to, yeah, have, have a mobility sector that, um, that services really the public in a better way than it does right now. So maybe let's start with this first and very initial question to really give context for this whole episode, and that is, why is the mobility sector key in our efforts to curb carbon emissions and um, what, where, where are we standing in terms of goals and what are, what are the problems and where are we standing in terms of goals when we look at the European level? Yeah. Yeah, as you mentioned already, um, obviously, uh, greenhouse gas emissions from transport are about one quarter of uh, all our energy-related greenhouse gas emissions. And uh, for Europe as a continent or each country like Norway or Germany to become carbon neutral, greenhouse gas emission neutral by, let's say, mid of the century, obviously, uh, greenhouse gas emissions from transport have to be cut down dramatically Um as with the other sectors. The good thing about transport is that most of the technologies are already there, are already available. So uh, for road transport, we know that passenger cars can be electrified and are even fun to electrify. Um, there are still a few open questions about heavy-duty vehicles, road freight transport. Um, and I think we will see a very fast transition in the next coming years. But one of the big challenges for transport are maybe two. One is that car stock and new sales are still increasing. And of course, an electric vehicle is still a vehicle with uh, some local emissions, some noise, taking away urban spaces from pedestrians, bikes. So one big question is, um, how do we manage to kind of decrease our addiction to cars and car ownership and i think the the other big challenge is what about emissions from really long distance transport uh from international aviation and also aviation within europe uh and and somewhat related from uh shipping those emissions are really hard to cut to cut down yeah which is really interesting when you actually look at the data is that there is there is there is not really ha like while in other sectors a lot of things may have happened already in the last 10 to 15 years in mobility that's not really the case and if, especially if you look at passenger cars um it's 
I found a number like in Europe we have about 300 million cars altogether and every year we get 15 million new cars and this number has been increasing as well. So it's, it's, it is a bit as if that system is actually still gaining acceleration while we should actually think about yeah decelerating that a little bit. Um, so that's kind of interesting. What, what In terms of goals, like, you know, we are not the first ones to talk about this. We are not the first ones to realize that something needs to happen in that in that, in that sector. But like on the European level, maybe maybe you have some ideas also about the German level, but maybe start with the European level. What what are the goals really? Because you know there are, uh, yeah, there are many <laughs> many goals and many measures in place. But maybe can you give us an overview? Like what has the European Commission um, and the countries agreed on uh, towards the next years, and what are the measures that that are very prominent? Yeah, the I mean the the official long term goals uh, and greenhouse gas emissions in Europe in general are greenhouse gas neutrality uh, more specifically for transport um, still the the current goal is to cut emissions by 90 percent compared to 1990 until mid of the century I think this goal might be kind of uh, made might be made more ambitious quite soon more specifically within the individual sectors for car related greenhouse gas emissions we have specific targets for average emissions or fuel consumption if you like in terms of gram co2 per kilometer for the newly sold vehicles of each vehicle manufacturer in europe these targets are there for passenger cars and we also have targets for 2025 and 2030 for most of the heavy duty vehicles and light duty vehicles so the large increase in electric vehicles that we have seen over the past few years now in europe are to a large extent due to the European uh, policy that company uh, that that car manufacturers have to dramatically reduce the CO2 emissions of the average newly sold vehicle unless they want to face huge penalties in terms of payment. And um, of course, Norway is a very special case in that uh, since it's not part of the European Union but part of the. Uh, European market, so it kind of is strongly connected to Europe, obviously, but also Norway obviously is and has been a front runner in terms of share of vehicles that are already electric in new sales. So um, traveling to, to Norway and Sweden, I very often see this discussion, uh, people stating, we are such a small country, how can we make a difference? And uh, I must say, in the international discussion, um, small countries like Europe, uh, like Sweden, are very often seen as a, as a showcase, as a front runner. So, of course, Norway alone cannot change the automotive industry. But Norway is showing the rest of the world that almost full electrification of new car sales is possible and is fun for the people to drive. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You see that here very often. It's like always when I come flying back to Germany, and then I go out in the road. It's like ah, oh, diesel, diesel, benzene, benzene. <laughs> and I think it's like a year ago when I was still living in Germany, that was like super normal. But since living here now, every second or third car that you see in the road on the road is is an electrified vehicle, and that's that's a very beautiful thing. Um, and then you like go to other countries, you think you, you realize how how much other countries lag behind. But we also have to be real, and that this country here is quite wealthy, and they've started way earlier. I remember in Germany there was this goal for I think a, hun a million uh, battery electric vehicles until 2020, if I'm not mistaken, and they put that goal into place in uh, 2010 maybe. Um, and only and and I was like 
in the beginning, I was like still believing it. And then later I was like, there's nothing going to happen. And suddenly we are, but suddenly in the last three years, a lot of things happen. And so there you can really see that the innovation systems of such new technology sometimes need some time to really build up. And then they, they really kick in, in. And that's also what we can see now with, for example, com companies like Tesla or, you know, also Volkswagen, who are who, who's doing a lot of, um, yeah, who, who are just pumping out a lot of electric vehicles right now and, and also plan that further in the next years um you you talked about these these um these fleet values and um there was this 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 goal for for example between 2015 and 19 it was 130 grams um now it's 95 grams between 2020 2024 i think and by 2030 it's about another reduction of uh, 30 percent or something um so how did that come about and can you tell me maybe a little bit when we talk about passenger cars um how, what's the role or what from your perspective as a researcher what was the role of, of incumbent companies really um in this process of getting um yeah getting these new drivetrains on, on on the road during the last 10 years because i feel it was a bit of a bumpy road yeah so certainly it was a bit it was a bit bumpy i mean obviously uh companies are not made to bring about new things or save the environment uh companies first and foremost have the goal of making money making profits for stakeholders shareholders and so on and um so i think what what we need what we can take away from that is that um you need a lot of policies in place to actually steer the transition into a right direction and um Uh, people sometimes speak about policy mixes, and I think, uh, yes, yeah, so a policy mix is very, very helpful. So, depend and and every level kind of can contribute. I would say so. On the European level, you can really say, okay, we are a big market. We can make really goals and force the industry to change the whole transition. But also on the national level, you can provide incentives for these new vehicles or disincentives for the old vehicles. Um, also, depending on the federal budget you have available, uh, but also on the local level, um, cities can make uh, parking restrictions, can ban access for older, high-emitting vehicles. And it, I mean, it, it's not limited to uh, just combustion engine or not. It can also be old vehicles without catalysts with high nitrogen emissions. And the same is also transferable, I would believe, to, uh, let's say, the future of mobility with non-motorized transport. So um, when you say, okay, our whole motivation is to cut carbon dioxide emissions and to make transport more sustainable, well, in terms of a life cycle perspective, no vehicle is greener than any, even than an electric vehicle. So um, I think we can also learn about, about biking and public transport that local policies, national policies, and uh, more general, maybe European policies, when they come together, they can make a very strong difference. And uh, you need some showcases, you need R&D funding and, and, and all that. So I think a, a large mix is needed. Which is also, I mean, you might say, well, that is so, that's so much to do, all these policies, they all need to come together. But then it's also a good thing because depending on where you are, different governments, different parts of the world, in Europe, in North America, Eastern Europe, Northern, Southern, Western, Central, can put a specific focus on, yeah, maybe we want to incentivize, maybe we want to have disincentives, maybe we want to have more regulation or reg less regulation. So there's also a lot of freedom for policymakers and for 
actors and societies to find what is best for them. And um, I mean, nowadays, the, the um, Netherlands are very famous for biking. But when you look at the, at the history of mobility in the Netherlands, they were not born for biking. It took 50 years of infrastructure build up, changing the way of living, changing their everyday practice. And um, so, yes, it takes time. But the good thing is, um, it shows that this is, this is possible, not only uh, in, a, uh, in the Netherlands, but also in the rest of Europe. Yeah, I would love for other countries and cities to actually pick up how how it's organized in the, in the Netherlands in uh, concerning concerning bike transport or like bike mobility. That would be beautiful. Um, I hear like I think I have a pretty strong opinion on what's going to happen or a little bit in the in the passenger sec uh, passenger transport sector, and that's probably going to be like we see the build up of electricity of electric cars so strongly right now. But there's always again and again voices that say oh it's not maybe electric mobility but it still could be hydrogen or there could be other uh, other options how a drivetrain could work could you give me an idea or the audience an idea of how um, how large the advantages or the how far it is has come already the, the this technology of electric vehicles versus the other ones or is am i mistaken and maybe there's other technologies in in the ring that also might take over Mm. No, that's a very, very good point. There's a lot of discussion and uh, very often in the media, all these options are being discussed. But frankly speaking, um, looking what the industry does, I think the industry has basically decided towards full electrification, towards better electric vehicles. Um, so more general, the options that you mentioned, yes, there's uh, battery electric vehicles, there are plug-in hybrids electric vehicles, which have both a combustion engine and a battery, which they can run on. Uh, but also there are so-called, there are hydrogen vehicles with a, where a fuel cell converts hydrogen to electricity, again, with an electric motor. Other options are biofuels um, and uh, also maybe synthetic fuels that are being produced from um, renewable electricity. So so all of these options are out there and sometimes um, people argue especially of course uh, from the oil business is that uh, why do we do all this fuss with electrification we can just produce synthetic fuels use all the infrastructure and if you do but if you do the calculation uh, yes of course it would be nice to use the existing uh, gas stations and infrastructure but to produce synthetic fuels from renewable electricity has so many additional conversion steps, which all cost a lot of money, that it's always more expensive to uh, use synthetic fuels than to just use the renewable electricity directly. Um, so, yes, there are potentials to decrease cost, but um, it's kind of obvious that using electricity in a high efficiency electric motor directly instead of using the same electricity to convert it to hydrogen to convert it to a synthetic fuel and then put it in a combustion engine with a low efficiency of maybe one of 30 third, degrees or yeah 30 percent or so maybe 40 percent even obviously there are so many conversion losses which means you would need much more electricity to use combustion engine vehicles with renewable fuels and it would be much more expensive and i think um, the, the industry sees that it's quite clear so i think biofuels might play a minor role in segments that are really difficult to electrify, uh, maybe when you are working in agriculture for harvesting vehicles, that might play a role, although there are already the first uh, electric harvesting machines on the market. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> it's a very <laughs> special segment. Uh, um, 
maybe also parts of shipping or so there, there are some segments that are really difficult and biofuels might come in very very handy there flying flying maybe like yeah the, con intercontinental flying exactly, at least. intercontinental aviation uh, but for passenger cars um, the other thing that is being discussed is hydrogen and i think there the industry has really made its decision so the only international large manufacturer that is still offering hydrogen fuel cell cars is hyundai all the others have basically stopped uh, toyota is still offering a vehicle uh, and used to be very much in favor of hydrogen also to due to specific conditions in in japan uh, and a in parts of asia but now with its new strategy toyota has announced 30 new battery electric vehicle models worldwide and no additional no, not even a second hydrogen passenger car. Okay, so, so I think that's 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 the dices have fallen. It sounds a bit like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We we might see plug-in hybrids for a longer time in Europe because uh, the Europe, the manufacturers are very strong in producing combustion engines, and I think they can make a lot of profit uh, selling these hybrid vehicles. But um, as their really greenhouse gas emission benefits are very much questioned uh, based on several studies. I think we will see a phase out probably in 10 years or so. Yeah. When we think about electric transport and that does not only uh, does not only work for passenger cars but also for 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 freight transport and we'll talk that in a little bit. We always come to the point that these cars also need, need to be charged and I know that you've been doing some research um on charging uh, um yeah freight transport um so like buses and stuff but maybe just here while we're talking about passenger cars right now when it's it's not just it does not suffice to only yeah put cars on the roads but you also need to charge them and that has implications for 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 the build up of grids and uh, to make uh, charging points available what what's the state there and what are the challenges that 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 countries maybe are facing right now and regions are facing yeah there is um yeah one challenge related to uh passenger car charging infrastructure are are densely populated areas so i think when you're living um somewhere in the countryside and the people who own the car there very often have a garage for them it it works quite well to to have a to have a garage where you can plug in the vehicle every night but if you're living in a really big city where not everybody has a garage what do you do with them and this is becoming more and more relevant now. And um, I think the, the the solutions have started to be discussed. And uh, the options there are, well, people should charge. Um, so it, it doesn't make much sense to build a charger at every parking spot in every uh, area around the cities. Because usually in densely populated cities, the roads are, are narrow, the pedestrian areas are narrow, and... Um, building charging infrastructure there would be very expensive and you would take away a lot of public space from everybody so and also would be very expensive for the cities but also for the utilities who should operate these uh, slow chargers so the alternative is the following um build charging infrastructure for people living in cities who do not own a garage at places where people go anyway when they go for shopping at the supermarket, when they go to work, charge at the workplace, these are the most commonly visited locations. And uh, a third option that might be very helpful is to build some fast charging parks in the cities, maybe at an existing gas station already. So with the uh, really new fast chargers, with the new electric vehicles, uh, you can charge 200, 300 kilometers of range within 20 minutes. 
And uh, when you drink a coffee while that, this is, I mean, that's not identical to going to the gas station, but it's not that far away. And I think technology will improve further. So I think that's one of the challenges we see at the moment. Maybe a minor challenge is with the increasing electric car stock, when you really have long distance travel, uh, maybe a charging station next to the highway uh, in peak hours with maybe 20, 50, 100 vehicles charging, um, we might need some, I think we do need some grid enforcement there, but that is that is doable. I mean, that is, uh, costs some money, but it's doable. And the overall system is still uh, better than continuing burning fossil fuels. <laughs> is it? <laughs> I'm always wondering why, why you, were, you were talking about petrol stations. Why, why is there not a charger on every petrol, petrol station? I feel these petrol stations know that their business is going down and still they don't even get chargers. Like, I know there are kiosks and they sell whatever drinks and uh, sweet stuff i don't know but like is that is it just a no-brainer to me or are there other other uh, other points that i just don't see why they're don't, not doing that i think it's a um so i mean to be to be fair i think uh some of the big oil companies they got the message and they started to invest in chargers um also to some extent uh the european union is forcing them so they now have to um They have to, they have quotas uh, on how how much electricity they need to sell for charging vehicles. Well, obviously most of them don't sell that, but they buy uh, certificates from others. But but still, they're 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 being pushed. Uh, no, but I think there I think the many of them they are still listening to people saying that hydrogen will play a large role, which is very similar to their existing business model, um, selling liquid or gaseous fuel in high concentration at a certain station. Um, But I think for them, it's also not so relevant because when you, when you, I mean, outside of Norway for the rest of Europe, the share of electric vehicles in overall car stock is maybe 2%. So for them, is what are you talking about? 98% of vehicles need us. Uh, so um, I think the transition will come to them and we see new players emerging. Um, utilities are very strong in that. And I think, yeah, some, some gas stations or companies might go down. Uh, which is not nice for people working there, but that's the that's the normal process. I mean, when the car was invented, um, all those peer, poor people um, with horse carriages, <laughs> uh, many of them also went went bankrupt. So yeah. um, sounds like I, Schumpeter's creative destruction. Yeah, exactly. I think we 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 need to be aware of that, and we need to find solutions for the people involved. I mean, they they all need a living. They all have a family. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. Having talked about passenger cars now, let's jump to freight transport. So um, before we start hit, before I hit the recording button, you said it's actually quite an interesting area because there's so many things happening. So Patrick, what's happening <laughs> in, yeah, so in freight a, and in transport? <laughs> yeah. So as a, as a researcher, um, it's a lot of fun to work in an area where so many things are unknown and things are changing uh, very quickly. So yeah, I think with passenger cars, as, as I mentioned. Uh, it's it's all decided it's going to be better electric the question is only when uh, it's not if it's just when and how fast um for trucks things are changing quite quickly so a few years ago i think four years ago 
We did a study on uh, electric road systems, charging trucks while driving on the road. Back then, we didn't even look into battery electric trucks because we thought this is this is nonsense. This is never going to happen. Now, what is yeah? What is what are the arguments against that? Like four years ago, what were the arguments? Uh, is yeah. it just too heavy? Like what were the arguments that? Yeah, it, this the would arguments never were that if you talk to people working in logistics, they'll tell you, yeah, I go so long distance, my truck needs at least one thousand kilometers of range. Maybe one thousand five hundred would be better because I go, I, I drive so much. And uh, when you just do, do the calculations and you look, oh, energy density of the battery, okay, to drive 1,500 kilometers, you need, I don't know, 10, 15 tons of battery to, to, to drive the truck. So it, it seemed that this is nonsense. But uh, now, four years later, I would say it's only or mainly going to be battery electric trucks. Um, so the question is, what, what has changed? Well, I think not only myself, but also the industry has learned a lot. So... First of all, what about this long-distance driving that trucks do? Well, of course, you need to mention not all trucks do long-distance driving. There's a lot of urban transport where trucks only drive 100 kilometers a day. There's a lot of regional transport where trucks mainly drive 200, usually less than 400 kilometers um, a day. So that means in those applications, 200, 400, depending on the specific application, kilometers of range would be sufficient. Also, the energy density and the battery evolution was much faster than we all thought. So batteries have become not only much cheaper, but also much better. Now, energy price has fallen 90% over the last 10 years or so, and energy density has doubled. So actually, you don't for many applications, you don't need 1,500 kilometers of range for a battery electric truck. Uh, you only need, you need less, and those batteries are now much lighter and much cheaper than we all thought they would be in 2022. Um, however, long haul um, for long haul applications, where actually some of the trucks drive 600, 700 kilometers a day, what about them? Well, we all realized um, that there is a driving regulation. Uh, a driver is only allowed to drive a maximum four and a half hours, and then he needs to take a rest of at least 45 minutes. So actually... Okay, so if you multiply, what was that four hours? Multiply, how fast do they go? 80, 90? Yeah, on average, they go 80 or so. Uh, so actually, a truck can only make 400 kilometers um and then the truck driver needs to take a rest and if that rest time of 45 minutes is used for charging then almost all applications are feasible with 400 maybe 450 500 kilometers of real world range um which the very first generation of better electric trust does not deliver yet but i think in in very few years we will see those trucks they have already been announced so the question has kind of shifted from um, this is infeasible because the ranges are in, the, the the limit the required ranges are insane and the weight is insane. The discussion has shifted towards: Can we manage to recharge 400 kilometers of range for battery electric truck in 45 minutes? And uh, again, when you do the calculation, that means you need a charging station that has 700 to 1,000 kilowatts of charging power. 700 to one like what's the top that you have for porsche right now 400 yeah so if you if you go home i mean your socket uh a typical socket in let's the not talk about the socket <laughs> has three 3.5 kilowatts yeah uh cooking electric can be when you when you really have four uh, heaters working and the oven that can be 10 or so kilowatts and for cars now, the new cars can charge, some of them, Tesla, Audi, Porsche, Hyundai, they can charge 200, 250 kilowatts. 
So actually, with the new cars, we're not that far away. It's it's like maybe double, triple on average. Yeah, it was like factor two, factor three. Yeah, yeah ma- maximum factor four. So which is which is which is still a lot, but not an order of magnitude or more. And um, so and actually, the funny thing is that with the existing fast charging standard for cars, that allows up to three hundred fifty kilowatts. And now the industry is developing a new fast charging standard for trucks called the mega charging system for megawatt charging that would allow uh, one megawatt of fast charging and um, i think we we there are a couple of projects in europe now trying to build the very first megawatt chargers in europe and i think the first will come in operation in maybe two years and the standard should be ready by then also the european commission in its recent fit for 55 proposal has announced targets for fast chargers for trucks along the main European highways. I mean, this is still under the debate and the member states uh, and the council, they all need to to agree on that. But the industry is pushing very, very hard because they see that electric trucks is their only way to survive, is their future, and they need them to fulfill their CO2 reduction targets. So they're pushing very hard and they're also pushing very hard for fast charging infrastructure for truck. And... uh, yeah, I mean, for the grid operators, it's a bit of a challenge. They they locally need to reinforce the grid. Buffer batteries can help, but but in the end, for also for the utilities and the grid operators, that's their day to day business. I mean, they they are happy to. Be and there's new business for them it, as well, isn't and it? It's new business, exactly. So they would say, yeah, this is a bit of an effort, but then they will get money for that. I mean, the the industry, the utilities can sell electricity, and the grid operators um, can demonstrate that the grid enforcement is required, and then they will be paid for that as well. So yes, it is an effort. But um, they are all willing to do that, and um, it's it's demanding, but it's feasible. So did you? So now you, now it seems as if everything is going to be electric as well, or at least it seems like that. But then, is that really? Is it like? Did the dice fall as clearly as they did in the passenger sector, or is there hydrogen, for example, still a bigger alternative yet? Or like, what what's the What's the state of competition there, maybe, between the different tri- drivetrain uh, um, systems? Yeah, that's that question is much more open. So, um, I mean, what, what does the industry say? Uh, well, some of the manufacturers have already said they are focusing on battery electric trucks for alternative fuels. Other manufacturers uh, have kind of a double strategy that they have announced to produce both battery electric and fuel cell trucks. Um I think the competition is going to be really tough for hydrogen fuel cell trucks because there's still a lot of development needed for fuel cells, also for battery, but but battery trucks are they are they are hitting the roads right now in commercial scale numbers. And fuel cell trucks in large commercially available numbers will only come by the end of this decade. Early. Oh, really? So that's not like next year or in three years, but that's like in eight years or something. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, th- there are trials for that, of course. You can see hydrogen trucks in Switzerland. But but if you talk to a logistics company uh, and they say, um, they, they go to a manufacturer and say, yeah, I want to order 10 hydrogen trucks, that is impossible. So they will not get one. They, they This is dedicated field trials to test prototypes. Um, so really commercially available is a different question. And um that will only come in the second half of this decade, likely end of this decade. Uh, but by then, 
we will already have the second generation battery electric trucks. And we will have maybe not a large network, but a kind of network of megawatt chargers for long distance transport. And similar to passenger cars, um, a battery electric truck is cheaper to operate than a fuel cell truck because you have less conversion losses and less additional things you need to pay for and to operate. So it will be cheaper to operate and it with megawatt charging, even long distance will be feasible. And for logistics companies, they drive, you, you know, a, a, long, a long haul truck drives 100 to 150,000 kilometers every year. So operating cost is really important for them. It's the most important thing. Um, so better electric trucks, a lot of applications will be feasible, even long haul. They will be cheaper to operate. The technology will be already more familiar because it has been in place for a few years. So, yes, I think there might be a niche for hydrogen trucks when you need really fast refueling, when operation costs doesn't matter. But I wonder, is this niche large enough for commercial production of these trucks and also for commercial uh, pr installment and operation of the required hydrogen infrastructure, hydrogen refueling infrastructure. So I had I had discussions with, with actually people from from Scandinavia saying, yeah, but there are applications like in in northern Scandinavia and the rural areas when you need to transport woods over hundreds of kilometers, they don't see electrification there. And at first I, I tended to agree, but later on I realized, well. Yeah, the distances are large and the energy requirements are large. But when you think about it, there actually is electricity in northern Sweden and northern Norway, but there is no hydrogen refueling station in northern Norway or northern Sweden. So I cannot rule out hydrogen and, and heavy-duty transport, and I think it might play a role. But I think the role might be much smaller than many people would guess. Yeah, and then the question is, as you said, if it's commercially attractive for large manufacturers to actually yeah fuel or channel so much uh, research and development uh, money into into these kind of projects um, or these kind of uh, um, yeah types uh, of uh, drive trains. Okay, now we talked about passenger transport. We talked about freight transport. Oh, before we go to the next one, aviation. What is the difference between light duty vehicles and and uh, uh, heavy duty vehicles? I just wrote it down because you were using this term of light duty vehicles. I was like, what is that? What is that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a matter of the uh, gross vehicle weight of that that vehicle has. So um, light duty is usually up to 3.5 tons maybe 7.5 tons of gross vehicle weight and then sometimes people say medium duty which might be 3.5 to 12 depending on the definition and heavy duty is sometimes everything heavier than 3.5 tons or heavier than 7.5 but definitely everything heavier than 12 tons of gross vehicle weight okay that is then heavy duty so transport. light duty vehicle would be a mercedes sprinter or a pickup truck that would be a light duty vehicle okay or, uh, like the tesla cyber truck yeah 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 or <laughs> urban logistics when when dhl and amazon they, they usually deliver parcels within the cities with light duty vehicles light duty vehicle. all right thanks for clearing that up for me all right let's go to aviation so we know there are good solutions for passenger uh, cars and passenger transport there is okay and probably very likely solutions for for yeah heavy duty transport let's look at aviation that's a bit of a yeah it's a bit of a 
a bigger challenge, maybe. Um, so there's 150 million metric tons uh, of commercial aviation just uh, within the European Union. And obviously, there are some ideas, but it seems a bit, yeah, a bit more daunting. So what are the ideas for uh, for um, for decarbonizing, yeah, the aviation sector? And maybe let's also talk about that aviation is so international, so intercontinental that it's maybe then yeah we need some other treaties, but maybe we'll come to that in a second. So what is what is the challenge with aviation? Um, yeah, the challenge is of course the 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 energy density. I mean, if you uh, want to fly for several hours uh, international long distance flights, um, <clears throat> that is really basically not not possible with with batteries the way we do it uh, today. So um, of course the the first option is to just stop flying um but still uh, i mean meeting in person uh going to distant places meeting other people seeing interesting parts of the world is of course very interesting so some people talk about electric uh, airplanes i'm a bit skeptical uh for two reasons um first of all uh, electric airplanes that are now slowly entering the prototype uh, demonstration phase They are usually small planes that can fly short distances, so that might be interesting within the country uh, to fly. Just it's like a, like a small private jet or so, um, but that is a really tiny part of the uh, aviation industry and a tiny part of the aviation industry. Uh, and also for these, I mean, they they are now being developed to become available in large numbers. Will take times, and also. Uh, planes are operated many, many years, so stock turnover is going to be very, very slow. So in, given the timescales and the slow stock turnover that, that a commercial aircraft might be in the air for 30 or more years. Um, really? That's long. Yeah. Uh, we, we, I think we really need to change the fuels to go for, for biofuels, for very strong compensation, uh, not only buying just certificates, but, but really doing something strong about it and, and renewable carbon neutral fuels including direct air capture of co2 and, and all these things so i think the growth in aviation might become slower because it will it will and needs to become more expensive with carbon dioxide taxes and and all other sorts of taxes but i i don't see that that people will completely stop flying for for various reasons so we need to make it much more expensive to reduce the growth in aviation but also we need to have very strong compensation measures and really good sustainable to a very high standard sustainable aviation fuels yeah so so we see that in the other sectors or in like in the passenger and the freight there is really options available for maybe changing the drivetrain but in aviation that looks a bit harder um, and you said your argument would be okay if we want to decarbonize that we have to we have to increase prices then needs to be yeah it needs to be in de-incentivized to fly but if possible then we could use more biofuels but the question is where where do they come from and then we've got trade-offs between uh, what do we do with the land that we have available um yeah doesn't seem to be very very easy as a as a yeah as a concept here and i've i've also talked to to a friend who works at uh, Rolls royce and they are They are in this process of um, building um, prototypes, electric prototypes. But yeah, they are here in Norway and they maybe fly from one city to the next one. And every flight is, I don't know, 40 minutes maximum. And it's like 20 people on the plane. Yeah, as you said, it's it's 
these these applications might be very niche and um, yeah will not be able to transition the whole the whole sector there. Let's do the last two two uh, two two areas and that is rail and shipping and these yeah they come to an end they come to the end of the episode and we don't really have that much time but maybe maybe also hit these two. So rail is very often seen as one of the 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 hail mary solutions because uh, it's because it does not really uh, emit a lot of co2 uh, when per kilometer of uh, that is a person or that a freight is being transported so it's in comparison aviation in europe or um, is about 150 million metric tons and rail if i'm not mistaken is only 3.8 so 4 million metric tons um so um and we see that uh, emissions in the re- in the rail sector has actually been dropped by s- more or less seventy percent, which I-, I find quite interesting to see that within the last twenty years. Um, so, but w- maybe we, when we talk about rail, how the, qu- the question that arises to me is: okay, it, it's it's a low emission transport opportunity, but the question is, what can we do to incentivize people more to to actually use it, um, if it shall be an alternative for to, for example, flying and to yeah, to use uh, road transport. Um, yeah, that's a that's a good that's a good question. Uh, I mean, the good thing about about rail is that that in large most parts of Europe uh, we have very strong electrification of the railway network, and um, even where we don't have it, um, usually you electrify those parts of the network where most traffic is taking place. So, for example, in Germany, only fifty percent of the rail kilometers are electrified but 90% of rail transport. And um, so so how do we manage that people choose the rail more often, maybe against the car, against flying? Um, scientifically speaking, that's a, that's a mode choice. Uh, I have a destination. Which what mode of transport do I choose to, to take that? And there are many, many factors. Uh, research shows that enter this decision. It's comfort, it's price, it's duration of the trip it's it's privacy it's how much luggage can i take how flexible am i in my departure and so on so it's really many decisions uh i think what we can uh do and what we should do is of course uh, the price plays a role so when we make the other modes um more expensive and rail uh, that makes rail cheaper or we can make rail cheaper right away uh, but also matters of um Ease of booking and um, ease of usage are very strong points. So, for example, when you, I don't know, you book an international flight, that's very straightforward. You just go to some online booking portal and within 10 minutes you're done. When you try to book an international train ride, that's a hell. <laughs> so I think. And it still is, isn't it? it? Like, still, why is that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it's more, it's more difficult um, because you use infrastructure in other countries. So if you're a train operator, um, you need to purchase licenses to operate your train on a foreign grid. And you need to make sure that your train is allowed to operate that. And all this is is not the case in aviation. You just, I mean, obviously every plane is allowed to use the air and they all know where to use the air and which height and so on because it's the same internationally. Um, And you only need to negotiate with the uh, departure airport and the arrival airport for the fees you have to pay, um, but there is no grid fee in between. There is no air usage fee or so, and and uh, and then it doesn't change from country to country. So um, and then aviation is very often straightforwardly internationally, so they have much more experience in organizing that in an international, easy to use, reliable fashion. Whereas railways has been historically very very much 
uh, country specific. Um, second thing is we need to have a better uh, offer, a better choice. So uh, we see that with night trains, for example, um, when the uh, or with a train table in general, when you only have I don't know you have a you have a regular trip you take very often visiting family or work related from one major city to another, I don't know from Bergen to Oslo. When the number of um, trains running there per day, when the when the um, transport offer becomes better, more people will use it. And the same is now with with the revival of night trains that we are seeing. Night trains were dying out everywhere. Uh, now they have a kind of a small comeback in Europe with more night trains, more connections. The whole uh, choosing the train w- becomes much more attractive. Mm, yeah, makes sense. Uh- I, I would love to be able to you know, take night trains within Europe, isn't it? And there's a lot of people who say you can't fly within Europe, but if there's an opportunity to actually do that and just wake up the next morning in a, in a different city, that yeah, that eases much more the uh, the decision making process um, when you want to get from a, from A to B. Yeah, but there's still a lot of things to do because I mean, traveling on the land is more complicated. So uh, when you, when you think again of Norway, uh, I was just kind of disappointed how bad the train connection between Oslo and uh, Gothenburg is, but also uh, Planning my next trip to Oslo uh, this summer, there's there's a sea in between. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. I, I I knew that, but uh, when you then have to plan your trip, so you you have to plan the individual legs. I have to go to northern Germany, then I have to take a ferry. So which ferry do I take? Do I take the one in Germany? Do I take one from Denmark? When do they leave? Uh, when do they arrive? Or how much do they cost? And, so I and is to... there a train connection at the at the at the port where you arrive, for exactly. example? Or is, do I have to take a bus? Yeah. So yeah. so I have to organize all that by myself. Of course, I have to organize to get to the airport and to get away from the airport. But um, I, the, the, the most part of the journey is clear. It's only this part to the airport and from the airport. But for, for a train ride to Norway, there, there are more things to consider. Yeah, I remember that. Um, when I came here, actually, there w- I wanted to take one ferry and then it didn't go. And then I was not even aware that there's another one. And yeah, wouldn't you fly? That would not really matter. Okay, Patrick, last area, shipping. So... We know that uh, yeah, shipping emissions represent around 13% of overall EU greenhouse gas emissions um, from the transport sector, and that's about 100 to 130 million metric tons, if I'm not mistaken. So it is, uh, it is substantial. It's not that large as the other ones, but still, what can, where, where does shipping come into place, and uh, what can we do about it? What are, what are options there? Because when I think about shipping, I'm like, hmm, is that just like on these little rivers or is that does that include all the shipping that comes from China to get all the all the uh, all the parcels here through Amazon? And um, what is maybe we start with what the shipping actually include when we look at it from a European perspective? Um, yeah, in the in the European greenhouse gas emissions shipping um, leaving Europe or entering Europe is not included. So this is only shipping within Europe. And um <clears throat> But still, very often shipping within Europe is kind of somewhat longer distances and with, with heavy goods very often, coal and, and stones and the like. Uh, or, But uh, yeah, I think it's somewhat similar to, to aviation. So sometimes for ships uh, like transport on water, you have short distances like ferries very often. And uh, similarly, I mean, Norway also is a front runner with very 
crossing the fjord uh, already is in some places. There's a big, there's a big discussion no around like getting ferries to be electrified, for example. But it's as you said, it's like 10 kilometers or five yeah, kilometers. So, and that is, I mean, that is nice and that is helpful, but that's a tiny portion of the overall shipping-related greenhouse gas emissions. And for the really big ships with the heavy goods, uh, it's very similar to aviation. We need sustainable fuels for that, and we really need to have quotas to get things done and we have to have very strong uh, rules on what do we count as sustainable yeah i think that's one of the uh, that's one of the sectors that is also just yeah we need some good ideas of how to do that there is some ideas for example to using ammoniac is that correct and might like be connected with with hydrogen so when you produce hydrogen i'm not really you know you might be helping there because you're a physicist but um, that there are some options To, to, to use green electricity for that um, and not just, um, again, uh, bio, uh, bi um, how do you call them? Organic matter? No, how do you call them? Well, biofuels. Biofuels, biomass, yeah. Yeah, biofuels. But the thing is we run again into the trade-off between what do we do with the land and the question is do we want to use it all for aviation or would we do, we, do we want to use it all for shipping or are there other ways? For example, this there was this project with, with super large high, uh, kites to be used, but I think these are just, again, re really niche applications as well. So we wouldn't. From your perspective, we would really need to do. Uh, we need to go down the the biofuel route if we want to make it um, renewable and if we want to cut carbon emissions. Yeah, not not only biofuels, but but in general, uh, kind of sustainable fuels. And uh, yeah, ammonia that you mentioned is one option we discussed um, that 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 can play a role. Uh, I'm not sure what the best technology mix is there, but but of course things that you mentioned like um, using kites and and also. Uh, just just driving slow more slowly and other efficiency measures they they i mean they can help to ease the pain because they reduce energy demand so uh, then the ship would not take 20 hours from a to b but maybe 25 and uh, we would uh, need to produce less sustainable fuels which which makes life easier for everybody Yeah, but again, it goes against the uh, capitalistic system I guess because you want to run as fast as possible to yeah to use more you get more utility out of the, the ships and then yeah um to have more money in your pocket i guess in the end all right now we talked about all these different areas about passenger cars freight aviation rail shipping and bef uh, in one of our email exchanges before we did this uh, episode patrick you said can we what about what about other general uh, measures that we can use do we actually want to tran be transported that much do we need so much mobility so the question now is like what what other And maybe then we'll close this episode. But what are like other non-drivetrain related approaches um, that we have in order to uh, reduce greenhouse gas emissions in this all in this whole transport and mobility sector um, that might not just be related to drivetrain changes? Yeah, I mean, mobility. Because you mentioned yeah, less yeah, yeah. transport, that's helpful. Yeah. So. <laughs> Yeah, when you, um, I mean, very generally speaking, let's say we want to reduce our transport-related emissions by 100%. Theoretically, stopping transport, motor, stopping motorized transport would be an option. But I think, and I think many people would agree, that this is not a very attractive option to uh, stop using motorized transport completely. So um, the question is, what, what, what can we do? And I think we need to be aware that we are, most of us are living in a very much car dominated society. So we really have a car dependency, a car regime 
um, which is a lot of comfort and a lot of freedom, which is also nice, but it comes with many, many negative aspects. And um, I think um, COVID, but also uh, our climate targets are a very interesting opportunity maybe to reconsider some of our motorized mobility paradigms. So um, do families need two cars as a standard? Maybe one is sufficient. Maybe when you're living in a nice city or when you have a nice bike path, um, you can bike most of it. It's 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 healthy. It's good for your kids. It's good for the environment. Um, and then maybe when you when you want to drive to your family, then you use the car. But you don't have to own the car. Maybe you can rent a car for that. So uh, I, I'm not saying I, I don't know the best solution there, but. I think it would be important and helpful for our discussion not to take cars and motorized transport everywhere and for everybody and all the time as completely given. Um, so there's this, there's there's an interesting story about about Denmark that uh, mayors from the rest of Europe, when, when Denmark, Copenhagen, for example, they started to invest a lot into uh, bike paths. And then the, the mayor, that's a story, I'm not sure if it's true, but it makes a lot of sense to me. The mayor was asked, from other mayors across the Europe, how do you manage to invest this money into new bike paths? And he said, I, I don't get the question. H how do you manage to invest in new roads? It's much more expensive. I actually save money because I build less road. Instead, I build bike paths. I have a happier community and more transport. So um, I, I think I, I just want, want to make sure that this is considered as a real option, uh, not only to reduce emissions, but also for well-being, for less traffic accidents uh, and, and, and all that. Yeah, no, nice. I like that. And I think everyone can 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 relate to that. And But obviously, as you said, the infrastructure needs to be in place as well. So you need to have the bike path. And if you have them, then you, you're more likely to use them. Because as you said, if you don't have the opportunity then you are hardly going to use it so but i like this because it gave a little bit of a positive outlook here and what what other options are there to just instead of just buying the next car and, uh, and, and hopping on the next uh, uh, plane or ship so patrick thanks for joining for this episode um if people want to reach out to you where would they find you uh they can find me on twitter or uh, online through the institute website so it's uh patrick Plutz. um Similar name on Twitter and uh, uh, Fraunhofer ISI. Um, you'll find me quite easily there. Yeah, yeah. I'll put the link to your webpage and to your Twitter handle into the show notes. That's lovely. Cool. Patrick, thanks for joining today. Thank you, Julius. Thank you, everybody.